Hello and welcome to Prescribing Change, a podcast from the General Medical Council. We've just published a UK-wide review of medical students and doctors' well-being. This was independently co-chaired by Professor Michael West and Dame Denise Coyer. We asked Michael and Denise to identify factors that impact doctors' well-being so that we can work with organisations across the UK to help tackle the causes. In this series, we talked to three of our clinical fellows about the findings and recommendations of the review. We also hear about their own experiences and stories about managing well-being on the front line. Visit our website to read the full report, and if you want to share your story or give us feedback on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at GMC UK. I'm Sunita Cross and I'm the GMC's Digital Content Officer. I'm also the producer of this podcast and I'll be conducting the interviews throughout the series. So today I'm talking to three of our new clinical fellows who are joining us from different parts of the UK and different medical specialties. Thanks all for coming along today. Would you please start by introducing yourself? Hi, so my name's Catherine. I'm a psychiatry trainee from South Wales. Hi, I'm Alice. I'm an anaesthetics trainee based in Edinburgh. And I'm Adam. I'm a GP trainee uh, based here in Manchester. In this episode, we're talking about the third core need that Michael found in his review, which is necessary to ensure a medical student or a doctor's well-being, and that is competence. What does being a competent doctor look like to you? But I think more importantly, what does it feel like in practice? I think the important thing with competence is not to confuse it with excellence. I think we as doctors, as a profession, are constantly striving for excellence. We're constantly putting pressure on ourselves for excellence. The exams that we sit are, are looking for us to, to perform at the, the, the absolute best of our ability. I think when, when it comes to the concept of competence, it's about feeling that you are able to, to do your best, deliver safe, compassionate care but that also the, the, the environment that you're working in allows that to happen and that you, I suppose, help others around you to opt to deliver safe care and, and, and to work to the best of their competence as well. I think for me, um, a competence is a bit of a tricky term because I want to be able to work to the best of my ability. And you're right, it's because we're used to striving for excellence. I mean, you want to be able to deliver excellent care for every patient. And I think actually we all just want the best possible outcome and we can do that in a safe way and we will all strive to go beyond that. But I think what's really important to remember is that the best possible outcome is not always cure. It's not fixing every problem. It's finding what's important and being able to deliver that. And I think in the context of this review, that's what competence means to me. It's working within an environment that supports that. And I think that's the context of the review as well, is about what's going on around me, how can that best support me to work to deliver the best care I can for the patients around me. So what needs to happen on the ground to make sure that you are supported to deliver that level of care to patients? we can operate to the best of our ability, we can deliver what we are able to do to, to make sure that, that patients are given the care that they need and, and deserve. But what needs to happen, as Catherine was saying, is that the environment that you're working in needs to allow you to operate at that level. If you are coming into somewhere where the workload is not manageable for the amount that's been assigned to you, or you're coming onto an area where there are rotor gaps, there is a lack of staff, 
no matter what you do, you can you can put as much pressure on yourself as you like to deliver the, the best level of care that you can. You are always going to be on the back foot because the support mechanisms aren't there to help share that load. And I think the more that you push yourself to make up for those shortcomings on your own by, by giving you you know by, by putting the onus on yourself to overcome those shortcomings, you are going to burn out. You are going to feel that you're not delivering good care. I think what's really important from what you were saying, Adam, is that when the workload goes beyond what you can deliver safely and where you can you know, take the time, show that compassion, it has a huge impact on us as doctors. So, I mean, I'm thinking back to my own time working in A&E and I think everybody who's ever worked in A&E will have at least yeah. one, oh my goodness, my workload was far more than I could possibly manage story. And that's the nature of the work. Yeah. Um, but for me, when I know I have too much, my brain will just start to melt. Um, and I can think of one particular shift where we came in to at least an eight hour wait. And that's the point at which we were starting. So you're starting with people who are sick and angry. Yeah. And you're then trying to manage multiple people in one go to be as quick as you can, getting these people the care that they need or getting, to, getting them to the place that they need to be. And if you're exposed to those scenarios again and again and again, I think eventually you're going to believe you're a terrible doctor. And I think that's what I would pick up on from what you were saying, Alice, is that one-off situations where we might have felt overwhelmed might be okay, we might be able to deal with that, but that chronic stress, that chronic feeling of being overwhelmed and the impact that that will have on your stress levels in general, your well-being, your mental health cannot be underestimated. And the difficulty there, of course, is it ties in again to the quality of patient care that you're going to be able to provide. When that becomes normality is when you're, you are going to be thinking, is it because that I am a substandard doctor? Is it because I am not delivering the care to my ability, the, the, delivering the standard of care to the best of my ability? You know, we're not saying that, that, that these pressures are going away. They're not. They're not going to go away. They are going to be here. But we need to be making sure that the mechanisms are in place to make to, so that you are not made to feel that this is down to failings on your part. You are going to have days where you're coming onto an eight hour wait. You are going to have days that the wards are extremely busy. But it's when that that is happening every day and it's, it's happening every day to the point where you're fearing going into work because you're fearing that you're going to make a mistake because you cannot deal with that workload. That must be happening quite a lot in GP at the moment though, Adam, with, with, um, the, the, with the pressures that are, are, are on GPs currently. Absolutely. I mean, obviously you have the vast majority of, of GPs are operating at 10 minute appointments and by the end of training you are expected to be operating at that level. And it is almost a, you, you, you feel it is a failing on your part if there are patients who are unwell, who are ringing up and they can't get appointments. You feel that you need to be filling every 10 minute slot of every day, fitting in as many patients as you can. But you are one person, you are one doctor, and you are taking on the problems and stories of all of these patients that you're seeing on a 10 minute basis. There has to come a point partway through that day where you are beginning to not uh, serve the patient to the best of your ability because you are fatigued, because you are feeling the pressure, because you're feeling that you're not being the best doctor that you can be. And that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're going to feel the same the next day and the next day until you burn out. And that is why there has to be mechanisms in place where you, you realise that it is the system at large that has to change and it's not you that is failing. When you're so used to driving for excellence every single day and every single day you don't achieve it, 
that takes a huge toll on you and how you see yourself and how you value yourself I think is what it boils down to for me. Doctors as in a general sense as a profession are a group of people that are acknowledged to be high achievers that work incredibly hard and, and maintain in general a very high set of values about what they want to deliver in terms of patient care and in the report I think it's referred to as moral distress that mismatch between your ability to deliver the care that you want to be able to deliver because of the pressures on you from the system from the workload around you. We know that the population is getting older more patients are presenting with comorbidities and really complex conditions um, so it doesn't seem like the workload is going to suddenly reduce anytime soon. So what do you guys think the systems that you work in could do to make things that little bit more manageable? Well clearly the, there's some huge recruitment drives going on in the NHS at the moment. We, we're aware that the NHS is short of thousands of doctors and within each of our specialties there will be recruitment drives going on constantly. I think though acknowledging that we have to look at the here and now and the fact that we know that there is a difficulty with filling gaps in rotors and recruiting. Um, so there are other ways that we can look at improving our workload and, and workflow. Um, an example that I've heard about in South West Wales is a system whereby they're using technology um, to improve workflow, so shared documents on computer drives whereby everyone from doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, managers can all access one live document, look at patient lists, workflow, pending discharges, shared job lists, etc. Which means that there's no duplication of work, everyone knows what's going on where, and it, and it does and has been shown to improve workflow within those departments. You're right, it's all about thinking about the workload differently. And I know it's not about prioritising necessarily one service over another, but it's about thinking how can we make that as efficient as it can be. And I know in Scotland, one of the previous Scottish Clinical Leadership Fellows, Liz, has developed um, a service with NHS Lanarkshire that looks at all patients referred in for hand surgery. So they get options of self-management, they get options of physio, and they get options of seeing a surgeon rather than just going straight to see the surgeon, which led to longer waits. And then lots of people get there, they don't want an operation on their hand. Um, so she's done a lot of work around diverting workflow through enabling patients to make decisions for themselves. And that's cut down their wait times, it's cut down the number of people having unnecessary appointments, um, but also it's taken a lot of creative thinking from her. So I suppose a big part of it is giving people enough space to come up with the ideas to do things that might help us think differently, that might help us see the workload differently, and that actually gives the power back to patients. Because if you give the power to patients and let them in some ways self-manage or take a bit more control, have a bit more autonomy, then actually not everything in the world has to be done by a doctor. There is a, a really good example of a practice that I, I worked in a bit earlier on in my training, is this idea that everything does not need to be done by the doctor. There is a, a massive uh, amount of scope for being able to identify tasks that actually other health professionals are in just as good a position, if not better a position, to look after these patients. When it comes to medication reviews, increasingly pharmacists are being employed in general practices. Because there are, there are in, in terms of the knowledge of what the latest practice is for treating hundreds of conditions, 
pharmacists are actually at the front line of that. They've got the knowledge and they are able to see patients on a regular basis to step treatment up and down. And that is, is, is being rolled out over a couple of practices I've worked at and it's working really, really well. So I think it is going away from this, especially in primary care, um, going away from this old-fashioned model where you're working your way up to become the principal GP, where you do absolutely everything and you are the expert on everything. It has to become more of a collaborative role working within a multidisciplinary team because there are patients that you're going to be best off seeing, but you can definitely lighten or spread the load between other people by just identifying the strengths of, of, of other people within your team. It's different experience and expertise, isn't it? And Absolutely. How you build that, how you use that creatively, collaboratively, to make sure that everybody is doing a job that's interesting, but nobody's doing a job that's far too much. Yeah. I think that's really fascinating and a great example of how how acknowledging everybody's competence is a really useful tool for managing workload but also for helping the patients. In other episodes we were talking about getting advice and support from your peers and from senior colleagues. What are your experiences of sort of management and supervision? Because I think it's quite clear um, to people working across different professions that the people that are supervising and managing you can have a massive impact on how competent you feel and also on your well-being. I think as a trainee, it can't be underestimated that the quality of supervision makes or breaks your time working in a department. If you have an engaged supervisor who's passionate about the specialty that you're in, importantly remembers what it was like to be a trainee, remembers what it's like to be in your shoes, then you are much more likely to be able to imagine what it will eventually like to be in their shoes and learn from them and they're able to impart their experience but also you're, it, it, it's a two-way conversation. You are then able to tell them what it is like being a trainee now and what can be done to facilitate your time in a department. What I would say about supervision, because we've touched upon it previously in these podcasts, is about how it can be formal or informal. Um, but I think what is really important to acknowledge is that it reflects the diversity of our profession because supervision needs to be tailored to an individual potentially or a team itself but it has to reflect and support the individual doctor potentially so there are particular doctors that may need extra support in certain areas and that might be because like myself I'm less than full-time I might need to focus specifically on specific areas but it's that two-way relationship and being able to have an honest conversation that has sometimes been lacking in medical training and, and is acknowledged in this review. I've been lucky enough, um, so in, in my deanery, um, I have what's called cradle-to-grave supervision. I have one consultant who uh, looks after me over a number of years. And what she will do is she sits me down, she makes a cup of tea and she will just wait <laughs> me to reflect on all the different bits of feedback all the different things that are going on and all the things that we're going to talk about and actually having that ability to reflect and a bit of mentoring and a bit of guided discussion about where you want to go where you want to take things is hugely valuable so management supervision when it's done well when it gives you the space to direct things to reflect to learn from your experiences is of great value but when it's done badly it is hugely damaging. I think what you say is extremely um, 
extremely important. I think we are guilty in the in the in the medical profession that just because we become consultants, it automatically means that we are excellent educators, excellent leaders, excellent managers. And if it's not actually built into your training, you know, factors that are going to help you equip yourself with the skills that are needed to be an effective educator, to be an effective leader and manager, then I, I, I just think that, that hoping that this diverse group of people, as you say, are all going to come out with exactly the same skills of being excellent at doing what they do, I think that's, that's really quite naive. I wondered what you thought more generally about the role of training in wellbeing and if there are any changes to the way we currently train doctors in the UK that you think might help prevent poor wellbeing in the first place. One aspect that I think we've picked up on with this review is that it's about future-proofing our medical workforce and that has to go right back to medical students and how medical students' wellbeing is acknowledged and how medical students are able to be supported when they go onto the wards and see the things that they may see which is so novel to them as individuals. I know when I was at medical school I was quite lucky because Steve Peters who was the Olympic psychiatrist was undergrad dean at Sheffield at the time and so we got some training from him around the chimp theory which is really about how to manage yourself and how to know when you're not working effectively and know what you need to do when that's happening and that was something that's really helped me be more efficient around exam times and not flog yourself to oblivion. Um, it's, it's helped me work more effectively and it's helped me know when I'm not being effective. But I, I know we've talked about this a bit, sometimes it's quite challenging, even when you know you're not being effective and you're not working well in the workplace to say, actually, I'm taking 10 minutes time out um, because it doesn't feel like there's 10 minutes to take. So I feel like there's a lot to be said for training people in those techniques to say, how can you protect yourself? How can you recognise when you're working well? What, what should you do when you feel that's happening? And how can you help build your resilience? But there needs to be a system in place to say, actually, it's okay to take 10 minutes out. Um, it's okay to go and do something different for a period of time. And if you recognise this, it's okay to talk about it, which maybe doesn't currently exist. And I know thinking about training as well, both of you have come from portfolio careers, so one career to the other and flexibility, and that's something that comes out a lot in this review. Absolutely. I think, you know, currently and, and in the recent past, training is a very rigid structure. You're expected to get on at one end of a treadmill and you're supposed to st uh, and stick on that without any de deviation um, and get out the other end as a, as a sort of formed consultant. And you can see in terms of delivering a workforce why that is a model that, that people have thought is, 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 is the way to do things. But I think, as you say, Catherine, to future-proof it, you have to realise that everyone's lives, every person who's doing general practice training or every person who's becoming a general surgeon cannot follow exactly the same path and, may, and shoehorn their lives into that. There has to be a culture where going less than full-time is not seen as an inconvenience, is not discouraged because it doesn't fit well with, with the way the workforce is, is being planned. People should be encouraged to take career breaks to explore areas of their interest. People should not feel that they're gonna be heavily penalized for going, do you know what, I've made a mistake. I'm, I'm part way down a career path and I don't want to carry on with it. I, I know I've learned about myself a lot more and I've identified that my strengths would be a lot better doing something different. Um, I started off in surgical training and I'm now in general practice and that's because I feel that I got to learn a lot more about myself and I am definitely much more of a, of a, of a generalist um, than, than I thought and actually general practice allows me to 
explore other avenues that interest me to do with my career, not purely the clinical work. And I think that we need to be moving to more flexible training where people can get away from this old snakes and ladders approach where if you are going to change your mind that you're not immediately bumped right back to the bottom or, or the start of a career path and have to almost start from scratch. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, Adam, because personally I've come on a long journey through my training. I was an anaesthetics and acute care common STEM trainee and then I along the way again found that I had reasons to want to switch to a different career and went into psychiatry. What happened to me was in some way there was some value in what happened though because I think that I was able to move across into a career where some of these skills that I picked up on, some of the core skills that I'd learned in anaesthetics actually weirdly enough, were directly transferable to psychiatry. Some of those key, very difficult conversations that you might have to have in anaesthetics, they're there in psychiatry every single day. The, the in-depth knowledge of pharmaceuticals and pharmacology, it's there in psychiatry every single day. And I think that, as you say, valuing people that move potentially in a different direction through their career and looking at the skills that they bring to their new place of work has to be something that we accept and, 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 and value. It, it, you need to be made to feel that, that you're not being a nuisance, that you're not doing a, a, something that is, that is harmful to your career by making that change. You know, we have to facilitate that that is something that should be encouraged because especially going into general practice, all the stuff I've done in the past, it's not a waste of my time. There are all skills that I've taken on and deliver on a daily basis in my new career. So I wanted to just kind of step back a little bit now as it this is the end of the series. We've talked a lot about Michael West's report and the key findings and the, and, and the recommendations, but I just wanted to, to hear from you, your, your final sort of takeaways from the report and also from our conversations that we've had about it. I think my takeaway is that well-being is something that I've always been aware of, always thought of as important, but what this report really says to me is I go to work because I want to help patients. If I don't prioritise my well-being and the well-being of those around me, I'm directly harming my patients. So this is something I have to prioritise to keep my patients safe. And that message has really struck home for me. I agree with you, Alice. You know, well-being is not a luxury. Well-being is not an option. I think well-being is something that needs to be taken seriously, that there needs to be mechanisms put into place to allow people to take care of their own well-being. Because without being able to do that, um, as Alice said, we're, we're not operating to the best of our ability, but the patients, the, the, the whole reason that we're there to look after, um, stand to directly harm. I'd, I'd like to, it's not really my view here, but finish perhaps on a quote from somebody that I think we as a group admire. To quote Professor Dane Jane Dacre, former Royal College of Physicians president, doctors deal with death, emergency, and other people's misfortunes on a daily basis. They save lives. Somebody needs to start thinking about saving them. clinical fellows really want to hear your thoughts and ideas around all the issues that we discuss so please tweet us at GMC UK or visit the GMC website to read the full report. Prescribing Change is a podcast by the General Medical Council. Thank you to Dame Denise Coyer and Professor Michael West for co-chairing this review and thanks to our guests Drs Alice Rutter, Adam Thomas and Catherine Walton. Thank you.